Student choir, y'all really did a beautiful job with that song. That was really incredible. Uh, Nathan. Is Nathan here? Just want to let you know again what a fantastic job you did. You know, it's obvious that you have a passion for God's Word and that you are ultimately prepared. So thanks for that again. Um, Chad, it's good to see you. We're thankful that you're here with us. And all the ones that have prayed for me, thank you. Because y'all know I'm way, way, way out of my comfort zone standing up here. So anyway, we've got to do Psalm 42. Um, Psalm 42, uh, I'm going to give you an overview. Our Christian life is a lot like a mountain range. It's full of peaks and valleys. Valleys represent the trials we go through in life. And trials are always filled with difficult circumstances. As an overview, Psalm 42 is about a psalmist who is going through a trial and has become very unhappy, alienated, persecuted, and feeling like he has been forgotten by God. Even though his emotions are downcast, he knows his hope is found in God alone, a God who is faithful. As believers... We can all relate to the psalmist because we've all been through trials where we at times we feel alone, unhappy, and dejected. Now y'all read along silently as I read aloud Psalm 42. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him." my salvation and my God. My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God." Psalm 42 is the first book, uh, first psalm of book two, as Nathan educated us on last week, how the psalm was broken down into, I think, five different books. This psalm has a heading, as you've noticed. It says, to the choir master, a masculine, to 
for or by the sons of Korah, depending on your translation. Maskil is a Hebrew word, and it's a Hebrew word that we do not know how to translate for certain into English. Other evidence in Scripture seems to suggest maskil may mean something to do with instruction or wisdom. So this could mean that this psalm is written to instruct or, or gain wisdom. Or it could mean that it's a wisely written psalm. We're just not really sure. And this is the first mention in Scripture of the sons of Korah. As you remember, the Korahites were of the tribe of Levi. They were not priests, but among their responsibilities was caring for the Ark of the Covenant. Korah led a rebellion against the leadership of Moses and Aaron. He felt like his people were entitled to be priests instead of their assigned task. In response to their rebellion, the Lord opened the ground and swallowed those who rebelled. But God spared the sons of Korah. During David's time, some of the descendants of Korah became worship leaders in the tabernacle. And that's where their place is here. In 2 Chronicles 20:19, we get an example of their role. The Korahites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. So it seems to me that the Korahites were probably, the sons of Korah were probably the choir for the tabernacle. As Laramie has already alluded to, the earliest manuscripts of Psalm 42 and 43 were considered parts of the same psalm. Since Pastor Laramie is covering 43 next week, and is uniquely qualified to handle the poetic nature of this psalm, I'm going to leave that part up to him. Jesus told us in John 16:33 that we could expect troubles in this life. That's where we find our psalmist. What trial is the psalmist experiencing? And let me just say, there's so much material trying to prepare for this that if I really try to go through all of it, we'd be here all week. So I'm going to try to thematically go down through this and, and organize it in such a way so hopefully it'll be an encouragement to y'all. So what's going on with the psalmist? First, he's been separated from his home and his family in Jerusalem. Where is he? Well, if we look in verse 6, it mentions the land of Jordan, Hermon, and Mount Mizar. Most of the commentators I read felt like that perhaps our psalmist was exiled up in the very northeastern corner of Israel or southern Syria. And this is where the headwaters of the Jordan River start around Mount Hermon. So we're unsure of the significance of Mount Mizar. We don't see this anywhere else in Scripture, I don't think. It could mean a small mountain. We're also not sure who the author of this psalm is. It could be David. Some of the commentators think it is. Possibly when he was fleeing from his son Absalom. Or it could be a priest during the time of Jeroboam. Or it could be one of the sons of Korah. We're just not sure. Either way, the psalmist appears to have been a leader because he talks about leading the multitude to the tabernacle. What's going on with our psalmist? He's being persecuted by his enemies. Verse 3 he asked, where is your God? So his enemies are basically taunting him. And they're saying to him, buddy, your God either doesn't exist 
or he's weaker than our God because he won't help you, or you're not important enough for your God to help you. Either way, they taunt him over and over. Verse 9 says he's being oppressed by his enemies. Verse 10 says, as a shattering of my bones, my adversaries taunt me. So he feels like his bones are being crushed or ground into dust, as one commentator wrote. It's like his bones are in a vice. The image of one, the, it, this image is one who is in obvious, constant distress. The persecutors can see him mourning with his face or his countenance is downcast, his face is down. So they taunt and oppress him all the more. So they're kicking a good man when he's down, so to speak. Some of us have experienced persecution because of our faith. If not, the likelihood is increasing with the direction our country seems to be heading in. We should not be surprised when we experience persecution. In John 15, 19, Jesus said, because we are not part of this world, we would be hated. The world hated Jesus, and it will hate us as well. In verse 20, he said, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. You ever wonder, why is it that around the world, the Christianity is always the religion that seems to be singled out, the one that's picked on, the one that's ridiculed the most? Well, think about it. What did Jesus just say? What's the only religion that worships the one who defeated Satan? In Matthew 12, 30, Jesus said, whoever, whoever is not for me is against me. Satan hates Jesus and us by extension and uses his children, non-believers, or the world to persecute Jesus' bride, the church. What effect has this persecution and this separation had on the psalmist? In verse 3, we see that tears are his food. He's so distressed he can't even eat. All he can do is cry day and night. Verse 5, 6, and 11, we see that his soul, or the innermost part of his being, is cast down, dejected, and in turmoil. I think we all know what this feels like if we're honest. Verse 6, he asked, why has God forgotten him? So, we are left to ask ourselves, what type of person is the psalmist? You don't have to look very far into the psalm to figure that out. Verses 1 and 2. It says, as a deer pants for water, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul pants for God, the living God. I'm going to have to get a little drink of water. Did you know that deer sometimes pant like a dog? If you've deer hunted enough, maybe you've seen it. Typically, they only pant after being chased for long distances. And if the deer doesn't soon get water, he could have a heat stroke and die. The psalmist feels like he is being run down by his enemies. And if he doesn't soon experience the cool, ref refreshing fellowship with God, he will die. Only the living God can satisfy his thirst, not the dead pagan God that surround him. This water that the psalmist thirsts for is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In John 4.14, Jesus says, Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. What is eternal life? 
Jesus said this in his high priestly prayer. This is very, this is beautiful and interesting. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So, usually when we think about eternity and eternal life, we think about heaven. But according to Scripture, our eternal life starts at the moment of conversion. When we're introduced to the Lord and know Him for the first time, and the rest of the Christian life should be striving to know and love Him more and more each day. What is heaven? What makes heaven heaven? Is it the streets of gold? Is it the pearly gates? No, it's really not. What makes heaven heaven is the presence, the undimmed glory of God living amongst us. That's what makes heaven heaven. And one day we will get to experience it. Right now, our vision of God is dimmed as in a mirror, 1 Corinthians says. But one day we will see him clearly face to face. And that's what makes heaven what it is. Amen? Okay. Um, as evidenced, oh, hold on a second. I got to preaching too much. I lost my spot. Okay. Sorry. Do you know God? Do you have any desire for God in your life? And let me spell that out a different way. Do you have any desire in your life to read God's Word? And I'm not talking about cracking the Bible open when the, in case of emergencies. Do you pray to God? And once again, I'm not talking about for emergencies only. Do you have a desire to fellowship with other believers? Or would you rather spend your time with non-believers and out partying somewhere? If you can't answer yes to any of those questions, you really need to examine yourself and see if you're in the faith, because maybe you really don't know God. As evidenced by the very poetic and expressive language of the psalmist here, it is obvious he knows God intimately and loves Him deeply. Non-believers never talk this way, because they don't love God, and they don't even know God. Even though the psalmist feels emotionally distant from God, regaining the close fellowship he had previously experienced was his priority, not his physical exile and persecution. So let me ask you, when you're in a trial, what is your priority? Close fellowship with the living God or your comfort level? That's something we all need to think about. In Nehemiah 8.10, it says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. The psalmist is not feeling very strong at all. He's struggling mightily with his circumstances. He's emotionally drained. He's weak. He's lost his joy in God. He's struggling trying to regain his joy. Have you ever been in this situation? The psalmist seems to be waging a battle within himself between despair and hope. One minute he's asking himself why his soul is in despair, and the next he's saying, the Lord will send his goodness. This cycle is, repeats itself throughout the psalm. Even though the psalmist knows God and has hope, the circumstances of the trial that he is enduring has caused him to lose sight of this fact and rob him of his God-given joy. I think it's important that we define biblical joy and happiness in Scripture. 
I've read and heard many different conflicting things about differentiating joy and happiness. But the fact of the matter is, is that they are used interchangeably in Scripture. If one is joyful, they are happy, and vice versa. The difference is the source of one's joy or happiness. If your joy is dependent on your circumstances, when circumstances turn sour, your happiness and joy is gone. If your source of joy is God, then no matter how bad the trials become, you can always be joyful. We can define biblical joy as a sense of well-being based on confidence in God. This is a fruit of the Holy Spirit given to believers that is strengthened by faith and obedience to God's Word and by enduring trials. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-18 instructs us to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So, according to Scripture, we're supposed to always rejoice, no matter how bad the times get. Paul, in this verse, was writing to a persecuted church. If they can have joy in the midst of trials, we should be able to have joy in most of our trials as well. Each believer, each believer is given joy by the Holy Spirit at time of conversion. That joy should grow stronger as we become more like Christ. God allows joy to be removed from our lives as a result of sin. And sin causes us to take our eyes off of God and lose faith. Peter was walking on the water toward Jesus until his faith faltered by looking at the impossibility of what the Lord was allowing him to do. Then he began to sink, robbing him of his happiness of that incredible moment. We are much the same way. We can endure painful trials as long as we keep our eyes on the Lord. The trials are always painful and distressing, but our sense of joy can remain intact because of our hope in God. What does a psalmist do, and what are some of the things we should do to try to regain and hold on to our joy and hope? The psalmist remembers past evidence of God's faithfulness. You know, we as believers, as people in general, we have very short memories. We really do. Uh, especially if we're going through a tough time. As an example, we may have forgotten how we didn't think we could go on after we lost a loved one. But when we look back on it, we realize God carried us through. Oh, we lost a job, and we prayed for a job, and God provided us another so we could take care of our families. Or maybe you've been struck with a chronic medical condition which robbed you of your ability to work or do some of the things you enjoy. But through it all, God has made you content. You know, the Lord's Supper is something we do um, to remember what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. He died and bled for us, and He paid for our sins. But yet, we are commanded to whenever we take the Lord's Supper, to do it in remembrance of the Lord. Why? Because we forget. We have short memories. The psalmist sings. Verse 8 says, At night his song is with me. Psalm 95.1 tells us to sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully 
to the rock of our salvation. God has made us musical creatures. Once again, I might be taking some of Laramie's thunder, I don't know. But every culture in the world enjoys music. Music produces strong emotion and memory like nothing else. We are created to praise God through music. We should all follow the psalmist's lead and use biblically saturated music as a source of joy for our wounded souls. This is why Pastor Laramie designs our worship the way he does, so that we might recall the powerful truths of God in our hearts when we sing. The psalmist prays, verse 8, a prayer to the God of my life. The psalmist reaches out to God in his time of trial, knowing that God alone is where his help and salvation comes from. Psalm 145, 18 says, The Lord is near to all who call on Him, to all who call on Him in truth. While it's important that we pray for ourselves during trials, the Bible makes it clear our focus should also be on others. When we, when we intercede for others in prayer, it gets the focus off of ourselves and our problems and honors God at the same time. Philippians 1, 3 through 4, Paul says this, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayers with joy. Paul wrote this while he was in jail. And he, was, he wrote his letter to let the Philippians know how much joy it gave him to pray for them. We need to remember that. Praying, especially for others during our own trials, should help us rekindle lost joy in our lives. And as a side note, we don't pray for others if we are not satisfied with God's provision in our own lives. Philippians 4, 6 says this, we should be thankful when we pray. One of the biggest, if not the biggest, obstacle to joy in the Christian life is discontentment. Where you find contentment with God, you will also find gratitude and thankfulness. We are born with a tendency for greed, envy, and selfishness. This is the enemy of contentment. One of the easiest ways to tell if a person is discontent in God is the amount of complaining and whining they do. Guilty. When one is discontent, he is essentially saying he doesn't approve of God's rule and provision in his life. Let me give you an example. My neighbor has a fancier car. A bigger house, God, and a better job than me. And he's not even a believer. And to make matters worse, his wife is not near as mean as mine is. That's just, just kidding. Just kidding. Rhonda, you know I'm kidding. So, in Philippians 4.11, the epistle of joy, Paul said, I have learned to be content in all circumstances. In verse 13, a little farther down, he famously says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. This verse has been grossly misinterpreted by proponents of the prosperity gospel, who use this verse to try to claim health and wealth. But what Paul was really saying is that God will give him the grace to endure the trials that he faces, and not only face it, but face it with joy. 
That's what Paul was saying. In summary, no believer can live a joyous life without learning to be content with the provision of God in their lives. The psalmist remembers joyous times of worship. Verse 4, how I would go with the throng. And the throng here means in Hebrew it's like a thicket. So everybody was bunched together headed toward the tabernacle. In a procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise. A multitude keeping festival. When the psalmist thought back on his most happy times, it was when he was headed to the tabernacle praising God. We should all have a bank of meaningful experiences from past corporate worship services. Maybe it's a song, a meaningful sermon, or a sweet time of fellowship. Then when we remember it, it brings back feelings of happiness. The psalmist is anxious to go to church and to worship. Verse 2, when shall I come and appear before God? That translated really means, when can I go back to the tabernacle and worship my God? That's what he's saying. David said in Psalm 122, I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Why was this so important? The old, to the Old Testament faithful, being at the tabernacle was a highlight of life. God was present there in a way he was present nowhere else. We now understand as New Testament believers that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And worship is not centered around a location but a people. The body of Christ or the church. We all experienced last year what it was like to be separated from corporate worship. So the question I have for you is, did you long to be here like the psalmist? Or were you happier sitting at home on the couch looking at your computer screen? Something to think about. We did our best in a bad situation last year, but there is no substitute for the corporate gathering of God's people. Corporate worship should be the highlight of our week. And to move a little farther along, the Christian life is not a solo sport, but a team sport. Let me repeat that. The Christian life is not a solo sport, but a team sport. God said in Genesis 2.18 that it was not good for man to be alone. He has created us as social creatures. We are created with a desire to worship God and to fellowship with one another. When we forsake the assembling of ourselves together, we miss out on those benefits. A non-believer that visits our service may initially view us as a group of people who sing some uplifting songs and hear some good moral lessons. If that's all there is here, we need to close the door and go home. But that's not all there is. God is here. His word is proclaimed. His name is praised. Prayers are offered. Souls pass from death to life. Broken relationships are restored. We weep with one another. We rejoice with one another. We bear one another's burdens. We encourage one another. We stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Yes, the Christian life is meant to be experienced with other believers. And may we never minimize the importance of the corporate gathering of God's people. God has a special blessing of joy in store for those who obey Him in this regard. 
The psalmist understands that God is sovereign over his trials. Verse 5 says, he will wait on God. The psalmist knows that he must wait on God's timing for his rescue from his trial. Verse 7 goes a little further. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers in your waves have gone over me. Now when I was studying this, most of the commentators, when they mention your waterfalls, your breakers, your waves, they believe this is the psalmist acknowledging God's sovereignty over his trials. The poetic language here envisions a man struggling in the surf, being pounded relentlessly, wave after wave. And the psalmist is probably thinking something like this. God, I know you're in control of this trial, but I feel alone. And I don't know how many more of these pounding waves of taunting I can take before I drown under this ocean of despair. Why does God allow trials in our lives? Often, it's because of sin. God uses trials to discipline us and force us to repent and turn back to Him. In Psalm 51, after confessing his sin, David asked God to renew renew a right spirit and restore the joy of his salvation. In this psalm, there's no evidence that the trials the psalmist is enduring were the result of sin in his life. So, but ultimately, the purpose of trials is to uh, increase our faith, hope, and reliance on God. James 1, 2 through 3 says that we should be joyful when we encounter trials because this testing of our faith produces endurance. Enduring trials ultimately sanctifies us to make us more like our Savior. Stumbling and falling during trials show us that our faith is not as strong as it should or could be, which should teach us humility and reliance on God. Also, enduring a severe trial often uniquely qualifies us to encourage others who are enduring similar trials. Listen to Paul in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 9. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the afflictions we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired life itself. Indeed, we felt like we had received the sentence of death. But listen to this. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Listen to what he says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will always provide the way of escape that you may endure it. God's word promises that the Holy Spirit will strengthen us with the ability to endure any trial without sinning. The problem is, we often fail to live up to this standard. Romans 8.28 says, this is a good summary of how we should trust in God's sovereignty. We know that God causes all things to work together for the good to those that love God, to those that are called according to His purpose. We don't always understand the good that God is accomplishing when He allows trials in our lives. Suffice it to say, we live in a fallen world where tragedy is inevitable. When Job asked God why He allowed the trials that He endured, what was God's answer in Job 38? 
Now picture yourself, insert your name here uh, during these quotes. Job, where were you when I created the heavens and the earth? What's God saying here? Job, if I tried to explain the reason for your trials, you would not understand it, just as you can't fathom how I created the heavens and the earth from nothing. I want you to trust me as your good creator, savior, and sustainer. Furthermore, we need to learn and develop an eternal perspective in life. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.17 that this light momentary affliction is preparing us for eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Our suffering is short-lived, but it will help us appreciate the glory of heaven all the more. Life is a vapor. Even if your trial results in death, you know that you will instantly be in God's presence for eternity. In summary, God will take even severe trials and cause them to work for our good, even if we never understand the good on this side of glory. Trusting in God's sovereignty should, be, should bring great comfort, hope, and joy in the midst of trials. Lastly, the psalmist preaches to himself. Notice the psalmist asks God why he has forgotten him, but at the same time, he calls God his rock, his salvation, and he affirms God's steadfast love. The psalmist knows that God really hasn't forgotten him. The psalmist is like all of us who express true faith in God, but at the same time, our thoughts and emotions betray us and lead us to become depressed and downcast. Then, to make matters worse, Satan, the deceiver of the brethren, comes along when we're at our lowest. He tries to steal our joy by whispering that God has forsaken us. Don't listen to him. Thankfully, our faith is anchored in the truth of God's word and not our often fickle thoughts and emotions. Scripture gives us instructions on controlling our thoughts. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, We are to take every thought captive to obey Christ. Philippians 4.8 instructs us to think about things that are true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, commendable, and things worthy of praise. Romans 12.2 tells us to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You know, over time, our lives reflect what we think about the most. We need to learn to preach to ourselves like the psalmist did. What are we to preach? What did Jesus use to defeat Satan during his temptation? The Word of God, our source of truth. An analogy may be helpful, I hope. Imagine a power washer. The Holy Spirit functions as the power washer. The Word of God can represent soap and water. Your mind is your car. Negative, ungodly thoughts and emotions represent the mud that dirties your windshield. During trials, these thoughts and emotions cloud our vision of the joy and hope we have in God. 
When we think about godly things from Scripture during trials, the Holy Spirit comes in and does the hard work of renewing our minds through God's Word by blasting mud off of our windshield. All we're expected to do is hold the hose or preach to ourselves. The Holy Spirit does all the heavy lifting. Lastly, as we are transformed, we learn how to stay out of the mud by continually filling our minds with God's Word. To summarize, by preaching the Word of God to ourselves, as the Scriptures above instruct, the Holy Spirit trains our thoughts and emotions to come alongside the truth of God's Word. This should help us to maintain joy and hope, even in the midst of terrible trials. The psalmist, after expressing feelings of despair and distress, we then see him immediately preach to himself, to hope in God. Hope in Hebrew expresses the idea of confidence and security, not wishful thinking as the word so often means in English today. While the psalmist is indeed in misery and discouragement with his present state, and even though he is still suffering at the end of this psalm, he is confident that at any moment God will act on his behalf. Let's look at the psalmist's words and combine them with other verses of Scripture to use as examples of how we should preach to ourselves. Nothing preaches louder than the Word of God. I'm going to read through some encouraging verses. If you're encouraged by what you hear, feel free to give the Lord an amen. Let me get a quick sip. This is the end. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Hope in God. Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Hope in God, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Hope in God, I lift my eyes up to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Hope in God, if God is for us, Who can be against us? Hope in God. Cast all your anxiety on on Him because He cares for you. Hope in God. I will never leave you or forsake you. Hope in God. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hope in God. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Hope in God, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hope in God, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which He loved us, 
even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Hope in God, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. As believers, meditating on the gospel should bring us great joy and hope. When we meditate on the gospel passages, we think of Jesus, who left the splendor of heaven and perfect fellowship with the Father. He willingly emptied himself to be born into poverty. He escaped assassination by an evil king. He grew up in obscurity. He was homeless. He was rejected by his siblings for the truth he taught. Hated by his neighbors who tried to kill him for speaking the truth. He was rejected by his countrymen for speaking the truth. He was betrayed by one of his disciples. He was abandoned by other disciples. He was falsely convicted by the religious leaders for speaking the truth and pointing out their sin and hypocrisy. He was beaten, spit on, taunted, flogged, and crucified on a cross with the full wrath of God poured out on him. He was forsaken by the Father. He died and was buried in a barred tomb. He lived a sinless life to make himself the perfect sacrifice for our sins, to earn our forgiveness, and was raised on the third day for our justification. Why? Because of his great love for us. For all of us that trust him as God and Savior are given eternal life and joy now and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for the word and the truths of your word. We thank you that it brings great hope and great joy in times of trials. Lord, teach us to rely on your word so that we can be joyful in all circumstances. We pray these things in the authority of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.